Welcome back to Love in the Time of COVID, the podcast that provides tools for navigating conflict and deepening relationships as we weather the shelter during the pandemic. I'm Stephanie Matthews. And I'm Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. Thanks to all of you who are listening and who send us emails and voicemails with your questions and your comments about our episodes. We just want to give you our voice mailbox number in case there's anything you want to share with us about any of our current episodes or a question for a future one. We are at 501-492-9552, or you can email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at COVIDLovePod. We're on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe there. And if you like what you're hearing, give us that five-star rating so that others can find us on iTunes as well. Chelsea, how are you doing this week? I'm doing just fine. Great, great. So we're, um, you know, still in the throes of uh, the new not normal, as you say. We're not going to call this a new normal because that's not really a thing. So we're still in the middle of all of this. And um, I think... It's, it feels like there's an attempt to kind of go back to a sense of quote-unquote normalcy, whether that's returning to our jobs or kids being able to go back to some activities that they're used to. Um, but we're still kind of in this area of uncertainty. So mm-hmm. um, how is that playing out? How do you think we're feeling now that we're kind of being tempted by normalcy? Well, I think people are really restless and they're really just chomping at the bit to kind of get back to being outdoors and being with each other. I think we need to continue to be quite careful and wise about um, how we're engaging in that. So to continue to practice some safe physical distancing from each other and um, just follow wise guidelines. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, from your perspective, working with clients, and I know you're doing conferences and workshops virtually right now, what's kind of the sense, like, how are people feeling about maybe their work right now, or sort of their identity that maybe they had before all of this started, you know, if they could really pour into their work or pour into their role as, you know, a spouse, and maybe those roles have kind of shifted. How is that playing out? How are people feeling about this now that we're a few months into this? People are asking a lot of existential questions. And a lot of it has to do with, wow, the life I was living before, do I really want to return to it? There's a significant amount of economic insecurity and economic concern Uh, amongst many people, particularly if they were in the service industry, like with the restaurant business or any of the the kinds of service industries where it involved face-to-face contact stores, uh, things of that sort. So we're still in the midst of a lot of unknowns. And we don't quite know how it's going to shake out in terms of where we're going to be three months from now, six months from now, a year from now which is why I think there is a major paradigm shift underfoot. And we're really changing uh, a lot of the touchstones that we used in the past that caused us to feel secure. So we're, we're in a profound state of change here, uh, which is very unsettling for a lot of people, continues to be unsettling. And the question of meaning and the question of the people that we're closest to and how we're relating to them and who is in our circle becomes very, very important. 
And I want to talk to you about this, um, the unknowns that you've referenced and just Mm -hmm. sort of the, there not being a timeline with this. We might be in this situation that we're in now for three months, six months, a year, as you said. And today I know we're going to get into um, our discussion about self-esteem versus Mm self-compassion and the importance of the latter, especially right now. And so I'm wondering, as we think about these unknowns, as we're faced with these unknowns, and I think about self-esteem, I think a lot of maybe what looked like confidence or what's projected as confidence or self-esteem was wrapped up in what I was able to accomplish or produce. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people have felt that lately. And so that really kind of disrupts this sense of self-esteem and self-confidence. So can you just kind of break down for us the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion and why Mm -hmm. self-compassion is so necessary right now. The self-esteem issue, self-esteem has been at the center of our conversation about identity for a long time and the importance of self-esteem. We've really emphasized it, particularly in the raising of children. And one of the things that has happened and or that we've noticed as a result of this emphasis on self-esteem is there has been an increase in self-absorption and in a kind of narcissism it's not a really toxic narcissism it has more to do with how i'm special and how i need to be special um and you know garrison keeler used to talk about in the prairie home companion where you know where all the children are above average so this idea that you have to be above average in order to be of worth and this uh, kind of social constructionism of being above average is what's being challenged right now because when our identities are based on number one our achievements uh, oftentimes our titles some a lot of times on our accomplishments in terms of our economic accumulation our net worth, our goals in terms of, you know, I have some of my clients right now had particular financial goals and everybody is sliding back together. So if you have a retirement count, it's been very volatile lately and people are very insecure about where it's gonna wind up. Uh, There's a lot of economic security. So if if your self-esteem was based on your accomplishments, on your economic stability, um, on how you're showing up in the community, that's really been undermined. And so Kristen Neff is actually the number one researcher on self-compassion, and she was in graduate school studying self-esteem and uh, as a psychologist. And so what she was looking at is how contingent self-esteem is, meaning that as long as we're getting positive feedback from the people we're working with in our community, Uh, by the typical measurements of what it means to have self-esteem, we're doing fine. But when all of that is taken away, where does that land us? When we don't have a lot of reflection from the outside, how do we know we're valuable? How do we know that we're okay? And so Kristen Neff began to study the field of self-compassion and she's had some, she's at the University of Austin, Texas in Austin, and What's interesting about the way that she has conceptualized self-compassion, I'll I'll talk about the three dimensions of it. And the first one has to do with kindness. And 
I've been talking to people a lot about kindness lately because I think that it is an underrated quality of the human existence. Um, a while ago, I remember Oprah was talking about random acts of kindness, and I like that idea, the idea of, be, of being kind to someone when there's no necessarily immediate return from that person. So just being kind to the supermarket checkout person or kind to someone that you're just having a very brief interaction with because it will lift their day and in the process of lifting their day they may be kinder to other people. So there's an element of kindness that has to do with compassion. Compassion is different than empathy uh, because compassion has more to do with a shared not only just feeling into somebody else's emotional state but having a sense of sharing in their suffering. Now what's very confusing about this is we need to stay differentiated from someone so that we don't lose ourselves in connecting with another person. But to be able to feel with and to really understand what someone is going through is an important component of being human. So kindness is important, feeling into where someone else is, and part of that has to do with the second dimension of, of compassion and self-compassion, self which is to experience ourselves as having a shared humanity. So when we experience ourselves as all being human, it includes our imperfections. So to be human is to be imperfect. To be human is to have some dimension of your life that you're suffering from or that you feel that you don't have it all together. So when we have compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, particularly partners, we're understanding that our partners are imperfect people. So I think I've, I've said this before, but we all have this ideal in our head of sort of this ideal partner, the ideal person in our head. If we were with that ideal person, how wonderful it would be and how, you know, the dimensions of their personality, how they would be, how they would interact with us, how they would respond to us in a variety of situations. And then we're actually with this real person who is, and the gap between the ideal person and the real person uh, can cause a lot of distress for us and can cause us to treat our partners very unkindly because we are just kind of mad at them because they're not our ideal partners. So the idea that we have a shared humanity where we're both imperfect and while we are being accountable for not just lolling into our imperfections and saying, well, too bad, that's just me, uh, where we're trying to show up as our best people, we're giving ourselves some space to not be perfect all the time. So the first dimension is kindness, the second is the shared humanity, and then the third is that mindfulness. So mindfulness and accountability kind of go together because mindfulness means that we're actually being self-aware, that we're paying attention to how we're being in the moment. We're, we're really kind of, we're tuning in and examining what's driving us on an inner level. So if you put those three together, which have to do with kindness to self, kindness to others, shared humanity, which means that we are all imperfect, and number three, paying attention and being aware and really trying to show up as our best selves moment by moment. Those are the dimensions of self-compassion, which if we have it for ourselves and we have compassion for our partners, um, our relationships just go much better. So this is something that I've 
been reading about and preparing for today's episode and also, you know, something I sort of struggle with is this idea of can we be compassionate toward our partner or, you know, anyone else if we can't be compassionate with ourselves? It's very hard. It's very hard because when we're really hard on ourselves, uh, we tend to be difficult on the things that we judge in our partners as well. Uh, it's it's a quality that tends to run in both directions. And so it really is uh, very important that we learn to be self-compassionate. And the confusion about being self-compassionate is that if I'm self-compassionate, I won't take responsibility or that I'll just be lazy or I'll just say, hey, you just have to put up with me the way I am. That's not self-compassion. That is a lack of accountability and that is actually a lack of honoring the relationship in terms of showing up in our best selves. Now, I think it's okay to want our partners to show up in their best selves as well, because when both people are trying to do that, compassion and self-compassion become relatively easy because we really are trying to show up with our best selves. Um, So yes, it's important. And how can we develop self-compassion because I think self-esteem and self-confidence is something that is just marketed really well you know Mm -hmm. the idea that if you have this thing or you have more of something than another person um, especially in the age of social media where we can just scroll through and compare our lives to you know everyone else's lives this idea of our worth and how we feel about ourselves is measured against others. How do we go from that, which just is kind of pervasive to, you know, going inward to get to self-compassion? Yes. So we're in an interesting time. One of the outgrowths of something like Facebook or Instagram is that people start presenting what I call a persona. In other words, they take pictures of all the bright moments of their lives and, you know, when they're looking at their best and they're traveling here and they're going here and they're in this restaurant and this is their happy family. And we really don't see the full dimensions of their lives. We see what they're presenting. We see their persona. So there's a couple persona and a personal persona and a family persona. And we're really not knowing what's going on behind closed doors. In the 12-step programs, they talk about how it's really a mistake to compare our insides with someone else's outsides because we really don't know what's going on in their subjective world and in their private lives. And so we're living in an era where persona has become so pervasive. And we just need to be aware of that. We just need to really, really be aware that um, this kind of commercialized presentation of self is very popular right now. And so I guess we're seeing a lot of just sort of reckoning, you know, on a personal level, like Mm -hmm. my life used to kind of be what I created it to be, at least on the Mm -hmm. outside, we could project our lives a certain way. And now I think many of us are probably you know, in a, maybe in a bit of self-criticism and just self-judgment, kind of not having those outside forces that are anchoring us. 
Um, what if we have a partner who's a little bit more self-compassionate? How is that playing out right now with someone who might be able to tap into that compassion capacity versus another who might be a little more wrapped up in self-judgment? Well, I think we need to learn from them. <laughs> it's kind of like, how do you do that? You know, how did you get to be this self-compassionate person? Um, there are dimensions of life right now that are circling around that haven't been very popular uh, in recent years with this ascendancy of our consumer-based economy and um, this ever-escalating standard of living that we've been in. We're really, in an odd way, we're being humbled right now. We're being set back in a way that is beyond our control and it's really a communal setback. All of us are going through this together, no matter what level of the socioeconomic uh, ladder that you're on, there are some sort of setbacks and struggles and limitations that we are struggling with right now. And I don't want to overlook the fact that there's been something that's circulating that I think is quite wise, and that is that there's a statement that we are all in the same boat. And the correction of that is that we are actually all in the same stormy sea, but we're not all in the same boat mm -hmm. because there are certain people in our society right now who are far more vulnerable than those of us who still have incomes and those of us uh, who have a little bit more buffer. So yes, we're all in the same stormy sea, but we're not necessarily in the same boat. Some of those boats are much smaller, uh, much more likely to capsize. So this idea of humility and really looking at how interconnected we are. And another word that is absolutely not very popular right now, which is the concept of sacrifice. This um, kind of foregoing something that we personally want for the greater good. This is a very old value that really hasn't been at the forefront of our lives for a long time. But in thinking about, for instance, you know, wearing your mask while you're out in public, which we most of us now understand is not really about protecting ourselves, but about protecting others, because some of us might actually be carriers of the virus and we don't know it. So if we're wearing a mask, we're protecting others from being exposed to our virus load. Mm -hmm. um, that's a sacrificial thing to choose to wear a mask when you go out or to go to the grocery store. and. Um, it's a, a sacrificial thing. I know that my husband and I right now are writing checks to the local food banks because I'm very concerned about food insecurity for people across Arkansas who mm -hmm. have lost their jobs and we're living on the edge. And um, I mean, that's you know one of the basics. Food shelter, mm -hmm. those two are so basic to us. Mm -hmm. So having compassion, not just for our partners, but for our communities and being willing to forego some of the things that we might have done. Um, I know I've, I'm having conversations with people. We're talking about how much money we're saving not buying summer clothes. Mm -hmm. So let's all write a check to the food bank. The money that we would have spent on summer clothes, write a check to the food bank if you've got the extra money. Mm -hmm. Because we really are in a time when we've got to think about people who are more vulnerable than we are. And so when you're, you know, so if you're living in close proximity, with somebody whose self-esteem was based on achievement and reflection from the outside world, they're going to be more vulnerable than somebody who naturally has a lot of self-compassion. So we need to be um, we need, we need to be gentle with them. Mm 
And um, it's just so important right now that we slow down and take into account the fact that we cannot move as fast as we used to be able to move. We cannot achieve as much. And we've just really got to put our taproot into something much deeper. And so I've been talking a lot to people about the existential questions of their lives. Where do they really find deep meaning? Where are they drawing uh, soul replenishment? And so I'm not necessarily talking about religious orientation, but I'm talking about spiritual orientation. And it was interesting because I was having a conversation with someone who claims to not have very much spiritual orientation. And she was saying, I think I'm just going to take these rocks home because when I'm when I hold these rocks, I feel more grounded. And I was kind of teasing mm-hmm. her and saying, oh, so you have no spiritual orientation. Um, so we're really talking about the things that actually are grounding us and giving us meaning right now. I want to go back to this component of compassion that you spoke about earlier, which is mindfulness mm-hmm. and how that relates to being able to experience pain right now. Um, And I want to read something that Kristen Neff shared in an article. Um, She says, Compassion also involves mindfulness, the recognition and non-judgmental acceptance of painful emotions as they arise in the present moment. Rather than suppressing our pain or else making it into an exaggerated personal soap opera, we see ourselves and our situation clearly. Can you just talk to us? It is so good. It is so good. It's sobering. Um, And I just wanted you to talk to us about this idea of being able to recognize, to see things clearly, and getting to this place of non-judgmental acceptance when it comes to difficult emotions. So let's talk a little bit about mindfulness. And so mindfulness, it can take a lot of different forms. It mostly means just paying attention to what is present in the moment and not becoming overly preoccupied about it. Uh, At the beginning of a mindfulness practice, which is often a meditation practice, what we're taught is to allow our thoughts to just go by and not glom onto them. So to treat them like clouds passing in the sky. And what's interesting is when you begin to take that step back and to observe your thoughts rather than let them drag you around and trigger a lot of emotions, you begin to recognize that they come and go. And then the second level of that is you actually begin to recognize that your emotions come and go. Emotions are fluid. They sort of rise up and they fall. And where we get into trouble with emotions is when we begin to weave a big story around them. And human beings are story-making creatures. We love to figure stuff out and explain why it's happening. And we've done this since the beginning of time. It's kind of an archetypal component of being human. We are story-making creatures. These are where all of our great myths come from. Um, all of the fairy tales, all of the things that have pervaded our societies and are found in every single society. It's about meaning making. Why is this happening? And what does it mean? And so when we have an emotion, we tend to start weaving a story around it. And we cast ourselves in those stories. We, We are particular characters. And one of the great archetypal stories is what we call the drama triangle, which there are three characters in this. There is the victim, the rescuer and the persecutor. 
the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And in our interpersonal relationships, particularly with close people, we can really get caught in that drama triangle where we are moving from victim and then we're complaining and maybe we're yelling and being unkind. Then we feel terrible about ourselves and guilty and then we go into rescue and we apologize and we affirm and we try to make it better. And then we get into caught into this cycle where the problem never resolved and nothing's changing and we get angry and then we become the persecutor again. And then we just go round and round this, this triangle, the victim rescuer persecutor triangle and all the drama in that. And if we can step back and begin to observe ourselves, I'm always talking about the inner cast of characters and those three characters are very prevalent in everybody's inner cast the victim, the rescuer, the persecutor. And they take different forms and you can name your own, but they exist in your inner cast. And so what we're looking for is to become the observer, the, the one who can watch, the one who can say, oh, I'm really getting activated right now. I'm really in that place where I typically, you know, the pressure's building in me, I can feel it building. Normally what I do in this is I yell at my partner, but I'm just gonna go sit down and actually take a little time out and begin to observe the story I'm weaving, observe the emotions going by, and just observe them and let go, observe them and let go. And when we begin to practice this, we find that there's actually a capacity for letting it go. We can let it go and let it go and let it go. And then we can move more deeply and see how it's actually linked into part of our what I call the understory. They're, everybody has an understory and it has to do with their history and the things that got going in us as little people. And we all have a little bit of a different understory. Some people have an understory about how they were always taken advantage of, they never got their way. Some people have an understory where they're terrified of not being good enough. Uh, somebody might have an understory about abandonment. Uh, because the important people in their lives left them when they were little, so they're hypervigilant about the potential of people leaving them in the future. People who have an understory about being unworthy and having to overcompensate for that tend to be very self-judgmental, and they can also be very critical of others. Uh, so we, we have these understories, and the whole thing about being mindful is being able to take a pause, to step back, and to realize that this is like a movie going by in our mind. And the more that you step back and you kind of watch the movie and you watch the emotions that are triggered by the movie, the more you begin to develop what I call an observing self. That's what we're calling mindfulness. And there's a lot of other dimensions of mindfulness, but that's the most important is to be able to just be aware that this is moving through your interior system and not to become over-identified with it or feel compelled to act out of that story. And when we talk about those stories that we have about who we are or what we're not enough of, is that tied to shame, if we experience shame? Yes, yes. And so our great current writer and speaker on shame is Brene Brown. Uh, who's done some wonderful podcasts and some wonderful books about shame and wholehearted living. So before Brene Brown, there was a guy by the name of Donald Nathanson, and he created something called the Compass of Shame. And it's got four dimensions of what we do with shame. 
uh, one of which is attacking oneself, which is that self-judgment, which really undermines our self-esteem and is the complete opposite of self-compassion. The other is that we attack other people. Uh, we lash out, we blame, we, um, we, you know, we treat them the same way that we're actually treating ourselves internally, but it's aimed outwards. Mm. Um, people also will withdraw because of shame. They'll hide. Um, they'll stay away from situations that might evoke shame. And people will uh, numb. They'll avoid by uh, denial. They'll avoid by uh, using substances, getting high, drinking, doing all sorts of things. Um, they're all related to shame as an underlying factor. And I find that most people are really not in touch with their own, the places that they fall into shame. And if you pay attention to yourself, usually shame for most people will feel like a hot flash through the body and a contraction. And when little kids are feeling shame, what they always do is they hang their heads and they cover their eyes. Because when we're feeling shame, we don't want to be seen. And as Brene Brown says, so beautifully when we're in shame we do not feel worthy of love or belonging and so that's why we hide and so self-compassion is a tremendous antidote to shame because when we think we're not worthy of love and belonging we're actually taking ourselves outside of humanity and when we have self-compassion we realize that everybody is imperfect that we all make mistakes and that we are still worthy of love and belonging. We're part of the human race. So, you know, and again, in terms of being kind to ourselves, people go through all sorts of struggles. And some of them, for instance, the struggle that we're going through right now is not of our own choosing. We didn't do this to ourselves personally. Now, we may have done it to ourselves on a global level in terms of not heeding the warnings of people who've been talking about the potential of pandemics for you know, 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our personal lives, we didn't do this to ourselves. So again, self-compassion is the true antidote for shame. If we're with a partner who we hear them out loud saying self-critical things, you know, mm -hmm. oh, I'm such, you know, I'm, I'm such an, an idiot. idiot. I can't, yes, yes. Nothing right. I do is good enough, blah, blah, blah. Right. How can we be a good partner in that situation where we don't get dragged into it, but we can, you know, I don't know, help snap, snap them, out, <laughs> snap of the them out of it. I don't know. You know, it's, it's really tough when you're dealing with somebody who has that underlying schema of, oh dear, I need to be perfect. And now since I'm not perfect, I'm terrible. Uh, but what we can do, what, what, first of all, what I find is not helpful is to argue with them, <laughs> to say things like, you shouldn't say that, that's not true. What we can do is to validate the underlying feeling. We can say, oh, so you're, you're feeling really bad right now that that didn't turn out well. And again, I think that validation is such a powerful thing. We're not actually validating the validity of the feeling, but we're meeting them where they are. Um, you said something several episodes ago. It was kind of like, um, couldn't you just be sad with me for a moment? Or couldn't you just mm -hmm. feel bad about this with me for a moment? And I really think that is, uh, it's actually a dimension of compassion. It's feeling with, uh, but not leaving someone there. Mm -hmm. 
So you might say, oh, I'm so sorry that didn't turn out so well and you're feeling really badly about it. Is there anything I can do to help? Um, you might actually employ the things that you know that snap people out of states. Uh, we were talking about that a few episodes ago. I was talking about grabbing my husband and, ga and dancing in the kitchen <laughs> yeah, and how that, that immediately snaps him out of his state. When you're living with a partner, you learn things that you can do to help them out, sometimes taking a walk. This whole thing about walking and talking or walking with, getting into motion, dancing, uh, just learning the person and knowing what is helpful for them is, is what we can do to help people when they're feeling really badly. So to join with them for a moment and say, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, I know you, you really, really wanted that to go well. Uh, and you're feeling really badly that it didn't. And then to not stay there with them, but figure out something that you can do to not move too fast to move them out of that, but to begin to help them shift their state, uh, to celebrate something. And also to talk to them about how it's really hard sometimes to watch them be so hard on themselves. You know, mm -hmm. to speak about, you know, when I see you doing that, beating up on yourselves, it makes me really sad because I think that you have so many gifts to offer and you really are very hard on yourself. And when you're hard on yourself, I suffer a little bit watching you do that. It's a different way than saying, why do you do that? You know, why do you always say that? Or, you know, you should stop mm -hmm. saying that. Um, because you're dealing with somebody who is dealing with an underlying complex, something that was formed often in their early years. And, you know, it, it, it actually might open up a conversation about their early years. Because most people who are really hard on themselves, are, they grew up in an environment that was hard on them. And they internalized it. One of the things that parents say to kids so often that I just hate to hear is the phrase, what's wrong with you? Mm. I hate that phrase. Um, it's a, it's a, kids internalize this. And I think we are coming out of a generation of parenting where that was said a lot. What's wrong with you? Why do you do this? Um, how many times have I told you? Those kinds of shaming statements rather than uh, continuing to join with a child and really, really being curious about what is in the way of them actually following an instruction or showing up for themselves in their best mm -hmm. selves. What's in the way? It, which is a far more compassionate way of parenting where we're continuing, continuing to return to educating rather than shaming and holding kids accountable. You know, I, I often talk with parents about the family team. It's so important when we have kids that they feel a part of the family team, that they know they have a contribution to make, that they're an important part of the team. And when they don't uphold their piece of the family team, that the whole family suffers, including them, mm. um, rather than shaming them. So people who are hypercritical often grew up in environments where performance was overemphasized rather than the quality of their character mm -hmm. or the quality of their beingness. Mm. And you know, something I've wanted to ask you about is what can we do, you know, for those of us like myself who really struggle with getting over self-criticism and working toward self-compassion, um, 
just during this time where it might be harder for a lot of people to go to therapy, you know, financially Mm -hmm. to do that self-work, maybe therapy cannot be part of that right now, or maybe not as regularly as they would like. Do you have any suggestions for like other activities, whether it's meditating or journaling or things that you find help people really process kind of these story, the root of these stories that they're telling themselves about themselves? Well, I, th- I think a great resource would be to purchase my book, Negotiating the Inner Peace Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, because if that, that's a wonderful workbook for really defining your inner cast of characters and, and seeing how they operate within you and the stories that they weave, uh, doing a lot of shadow work and, and really beginning to separate out from those critical voices, because it's really helpful when you name your inner critic. And then when that voice gets going in you and, and you have, you've actually developed a little bit of observing self, you can say, ah, yes, there's my inner critic. And you can recognize it as an inner character, but you can have other inner characters that come alongside inner encourages, inner encouragers or uh, nurturing cells inside uh, that can counter those voices and that can acknowledge that they're yakking away but they're not going to be the primary voice that you listen to. So I think defining your inner cast of characters and then doing what I call inner roundtable work, which is where you can gather your inner characters together and let them journal, develop a journaling process or an inner dialogue process where you can really begin to untangle all those voices inside and differentiate them so that you can decide which voice you want to listen to and who you want to be the leader of this inner system. Mm-hmm. I will say I, you know, I bought your book after going through your Luminous Woman weekend, which for women I highly suggest. You know, once that's available to us again, um, it was Absolutely. a great workshop to start. You know, for me, it was just my first introduction to this whole concept to the inner cast of characters. Um, and then going through your book, I do love that it is, it is a workbook, really. Mm-hmm. You know, to to have these journaling exercises really allows us to process what we're learning through all of your research. So um, I think that's a great tool because I struggle with the concept that self-work equals therapy because it can't all, that's not always feasible, you know? That's right. And not everybody wants to go to therapy and not everybody can afford to go to therapy. And so there are actually a lot of resources around that you can, you can do a lot of really good inner work and what I would suggest is that when people start doing their inner work, if they start to feel overwhelmed, if you start to hit memories that are really difficult or things that you haven't thought of for many, many years, uh, that's the time to go to therapy because then you need mm-hmm. some support for really sorting those, those past memories out and holding them in a different context so that they're not overwhelming you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's such helpful advice, Chelsea. Again, like I said last week, I feel like it's almost selfish because I get all of this great advice for myself and then, you know, we get to share it with the world too. So we're all learning. We're all learning. Um, I just want to remind everyone who's listening that if you have any questions for Dr. Wakefield, you can call us or email us. We're at 501-492-9552. And just a reminder that we never share your name on the podcast. Um, you can also email us at chelseawakefieldpodcast at gmail.com and find us on Facebook and Instagram at COVID Love Pod. 
Chelsea, thank you again for another episode and we look forward to being together again next week. Sounds great. Thank you.